all money is made up. Whether we're talking about Bud Bucks or Marlboro Miles or whatever weird cash uh, or, or uh, unit of exchange our corporate overlords have come up with. So what you're saying is you're an advocate of the gold standard. I'm the advocate of no standard because wow. I have none. Why do you think Certainly I'm on a podcast with you? Certainly explains your wardrobe. Oh. Zing. Ouch. <laughs> I'm not the one who wore a green shirt to go record something in front of a green screen. All right. Dude, I'm not going to lie. It was like 10 minutes of troubleshooting trying to figure out what the heck was wrong with the camera. <laughs> Finally, I looked down. I was like, oh. oh, oh, I appreciate that you shared that despite the fact that it's embarrassing. <laughs> Maybe because of it. I don't know. Well, I mean, I think it's an important reminder to anybody that does technical troubleshooting. Sometimes we always skip the easy steps. Oh, I thought it was sometimes you're the problem. <laughs> Hmm. That also could be the name of my autobiography. <laughs> yes, we had another chapter. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Well, I'm glad we got that over it. Well, hello, Legend Human, and welcome to the Chaos Lever Podcast. And as we covered, my name is Ned, and I'm definitely not a robot. I'm a real human person who wears clothing and goes to malls and shops with all of my friends who are definitely not toasters. With me is Chris, who is also not a toaster. Hey, buddy. I never said that. Okay. I mean, I don't know what you do on the weekends. Maybe maybe you've got some sort of side hustle as a toaster. I don't, you know, I don't want to judge. Look, it's been a lifelong dream of mine to be a walking convection oven, and I don't think it's fair of you to squash that dream in public. You're right. In private, absolutely. When we get <laughs> off of this, I am just going to rip you a new one. But That is where the condemnation begins. <laughs> oh, and it doesn't stop. Just like this Can't podcast. Stop, stop. Can't stop, won't stop. Selling mad toasters? I don't know. This kind of got away from me. Maybe we should roll roll right yeah. along efficiently. Move, move, moving on. Moving on. That's good because we have we have a topic that everybody has been clamoring for. You know, I get so many emails every day about topics for Chaos Lever. <laughs> I appreciate that you aren't questioning that at all. And, you know, a not insubstantial number of them ask me to talk about what's going on with OpenStack. And so to all of you out there, your open stack heads, open stackers, the stackies, the stackies. the stackies, yes, uh, the stackaronies, perhaps the San Francisco treat. <laughs> well, I'm sure at least part of it was invented in San Francisco, so that works for me. <laughs> We're going to talk about OpenStack, or yay, what's OpenStack? The future that almost was and somehow is. Mm. And if that didn't confuse you, congratulations, you're a perfect candidate to work on OpenStack. Boom. Got him. Yeah. Right. Zing? <laughs> Let's, Let's go with Zing. Zing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I promise this isn't going to be a whole episode of Chaos Lever bashing on OpenStack for like 30 minutes. I mean, it could be. We could do that. <laughs> you, you and I have been known to... Um, Take the low road when it comes to technology, but not today. All right. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, like a lot of technologies, OpenStack isn't perfect or the right fit for every scenario, but it does work. And it hits the Goldilocks zone for, let's say, a certain segment of customers. So my main conceit of this uh, whole episode is that OpenStack could have been so much more than what it is. Mm. It could have been a universal cloud control plane across all the providers. And instead, capitalism destroyed it like it does everything. Oh, God. When did I become a socialist? Just move, moving on, comrade. Just going to sit here quietly drinking my water and not getting in trouble. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be fine. No one has problems with socialism, right? <laughs> Ironically, a big place where OpenStack is used is China. And also nice. the EU. So I think it all it all ties together. So let's talk about OpenStack. Uh, where let's it came, do that. Where it came from. Why it, quote, failed. And where it is today. And since, if we're being honest, this is slowly turning into a tech history podcast, whether we want it to or not, and I suspect one of us very much does want it to, Chris, I, I, oh, oh, I oh, stared me. directly You're at talking Chris. about me. Yes. Mm. Oh. We need to head back to the mid-2000s, back to the future, before OpenStack was a glint in NASA's eye. And yes, NASA is involved. I am more interested now than 30 seconds ago. Yes, I knew NASA would be the hook. <laughs> Unfortunately, they drop off quickly, but they are there at the beginning, and that's what counts. So before all of that, in 2006, Amazon made the Simple Q service, aka SQS, generally available. And this is generally acknowledged as the beginning of real public cloud computing. Right. Now... Yeah, if people you, always forget about this because it's hard to explain. It is. It's not immediately as useful as something like S3, which is what people erroneously think of as the first AWS service. Right. Um, eventually, Amazon would launch S3, I think like a year later or something, and then they would launch EC2, and then they would rebrand their cloud computing group as Amazon Web Services. But honestly, SQS really was the beginning of that whole process going, oh, we can sell this <laughs> and maybe someday turn a profit. That took a while. Anyway, at the same time that Amazon was launching that, VMware was revolutionizing server virtualization with version three of ESX in 2006, which I actually got to run very briefly before 3.5 came out. And then that was quickly followed by version four and ESXi in 2009. And I would say for a lot of folks, version four of VMware with vCenter, that was their first taste of virtualization and what would be eventually thought of as private cloud. What was right. your first version of VMware that you encountered? I Fairly similar to yours. It was definitely, I mean, I remember running like GSX even before the enterprise products were a thing. Right. Um, we had one of my first jobs, we had version three up and running, but nobody trusted it enough to be in production. <laughs> right. Um, but really, ESXi was, the, I think, the turning point. Yeah, that's what got rid of the service console and made it 
far less like a Linux operating system and more like a true layer zero or one hypervisor. And I think that's four is when it, I feel like that's a lot of people got on board with it. You could also do somewhere in there, they started introducing ESXi profiles. So you could have tests and guarantees yep. that your systems were all set up the same. That came a little while later, but yeah, they, they iterated quickly, but the, the key thing was the virtualization hypervisor, the fact that you could V motion things between systems and the introduction of vCenter provided an overlay, a, a, a control plane for all the things that were happening on your virtualization hosts. That was like useful. Yeah. Yeah. If you're into that sort of thing. I'm not, I, I like things being difficult, which is why I love OpenStack. Ooh. Again, so singer two, keeping count. Now it might seem inevitable now, you know, with the with the blessing of hindsight, that AWS would rule the public cloud roost, and that VMware would do the same in the private cloud sphere. But back in 2010, that was far from a foregone conclusion. We were still interested in things like, I don't know, Windows Seven or something. I don't know. That was too long ago to remember. But that is uh, 2010 was when Rackspace and NASA teamed up to create OpenStack based on the Nebula compute platform from NASA and the Rackspace cloud files storage platform. So you got your compute and you got your storage and you put them together and you get Reese's peanut butter cups. I think that's how it works. Two great tastes that taste great together. I don't think storage tastes very good. <laughs> anyway, so their mission when they uh, founded it, was to, quote, produce the ubiquitous open source cloud computing platform that will meet the needs of public and private clouds regardless of size by being simple to implement and massively scalable, end quote. It's so cute. Uh, I mean, a laudable the, mission, indeed. Yeah, that's quite the statement. It also includes two goals that seem diametrically opposed, simple and scalable, massively scalable. I don't know about you, but I've noticed that when things become massively scalable, they tend to get a little complex by their nature. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> OpenStack was not the exception to that rule. So continuing on our history lesson, the OpenStack Foundation was created in 2012 and renamed the Open Infrastructure Foundation in 2021. So if you hear someone mention the Open Infra Foundation, it's just OpenStack with like a sheen of marketing lacquer. It's also and probably it's also, a better. It's also pronounceable now. Yay. Now it's OIF. OIF. Oh, so now it's actually an acronym. Yeah. yeah. The very first release of OpenStack was named Austin, and it was released on October of 2010 with just two components in it. And if you guessed that those two components were compute and storage, you're <laughs> right. I got one. <laughs> sure enough, they called the Nova piece instead of uh, Nebula. It was called Nova. And then for the object storage, it was called Swift. And the naming for a lot of services in OpenStack is sometimes a play on what it's managing. For instance, uh, the block storage service is called Cinder, like Cinder Block. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. 
Uh, and sometimes it's not as clever. I was going to say, how does Swift fit into that? Shut up. <laughs> so regular releases have continued since that time. About every six months is the cadence. And they just have been going through the alphabet. So the first one was Austin, etc. The most recent release has made it all the way back to the beginning of the alphabet. And it's named Antelope. That was released in March of 2023. It includes 41 services, which I will now list out in exhausting detail. <gasps> or not. Now, 41 is... Um, carry the two, subtract infinity. Yes, it is more than two. I was just going to say that. <laughs> You might imagine that adding 39 services in 13 years has made the system somewhat complex and fractured. And you'd be right. <laughs> we'll come back to that shortly. So I'll share when I actually came into contact with OpenStack. And maybe if you have an OpenStack story, Chris, you can share that as well. And then we can toast marshmallows over an open cinder. Anyway. <laughs> I first came into contact with OpenStack in 2012 when I had, if we're being honest, just kind of blundered my way into consulting after a nice relaxing stint as a sysadmin, some, something that sysadmins have never been described as. Um, now I hadn't even touched AWS or Microsoft Azure at that point. In fact, Azure was something that Microsoft mentioned at the end of a presentation I saw in 2012 while they were waxing poetic about server 2012 and it's amazing touch interface. Did, does anyone else remember when Microsoft thought we wanted to be able to use touch screens to manage windows server? Yes. Clearly I... Satya Nadella had not yet taken the reins at Microsoft and told him to cut that shit out. You'll notice. And they still haven't figured it out. Well, maybe not, but you'll notice Server 2012 R2 that came out like two years later, they got rid of that entire touch interface thing. It is just gone. I know. Hold in your shock. Well, this is why you always wait for the R2 release. Always and forever. Or you always skip a release depending on how you want, want to do it. But yeah, like, you know, you went from Windows 7 and you skipped 8 and you went to 10. That was, Or you got Windows 8 and you just hated yourself for like two years and you weren't paying attention and it became 10 and everyone went, ah, <laughs> Windows 11 is fine. It's fine. Anyway, stay on target Skywalker. Um, my boss at the time asked me to look into this open stack thing. He heard about, I don't know how he heard about it since it like just come out, but he wanted to know whether it was something we should pursue and get training on, et cetera, for the consulting group. So I spent two days researching it, you know, leafing through the OpenStack website, looking at demos, et cetera. And I even prepared a presentation in PowerPoint that I cannot seem to find, but I'd really like to, because I'm sure it's God awful and kind of awesome. Uh, and I emailed that and my thoughts back to my boss. And I never heard another word about OpenStack. Why? Because our clients were small businesses and they would have zero use for it. Right. Yeah. That's more or less my experience with it as well. Um, 
anytime anybody brought it up, everybody got real quiet. <laughs> They're like, do you know what OpenStack is, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. I do. I, I have three at home. Anyway, hyperconverged. Because <laughs> we know what that is too, right? That's a longer uh, word. It's got to be better. It's more better. -er. Um, yeah, I ended up bumping into OpenStack a few more times after that. Uh, I don't know if you recall very briefly when we were working at the same place, there was an instance of HP's Helion running on one of our lab servers. That was, oh, yeah. yeah, that was HP's packaged version of OpenStack that they supported for like two years and then immediately abandoned. <laughs> Not that that is a pattern or anything. Anyway, uh, and then I bumped into it again because the VAR we were working for actually did have a client that was curious and wanted to run OpenStack. And so I had to figure some stuff out about it. And then they stuck with VMware. And that probably leads us nicely into why OpenStack failed. Let's just go back and reference those 41 services. Yeah, that might have something to do with it. So OpenStack, their mission was to be simple but scalable. And that was one of the big problems with OpenStack. Another was herding the cats of open source projects. Um, the OpenStack Foundation had this idea of big tent management style for the foundation. Uh, that was not maybe the best approach. OpenStack is technically not so much a project or a product as it is a collection of interrelated open source projects that all fall under the umbrella of OpenStack. Makes it a little bit harder to package up. Right. Yeah. And describe in 30 seconds or less. Mm-hmm. Not the same time, people were looking for a unified release of OpenStack that they could reliably deploy and operate with. And also at the same time, newer projects in, open, in the OpenStack world felt that they were getting left out of the unified release. So rather than it be an umbrella, the foundation decided they, they would expand things to be a big tent that everyone could fit under. Just asking the question, are you OpenStack? Rather than, is this thing OpenStack? What? It's in the mission statement. If it sounds esoteric and confusing, then OpenStack might not be right for you. Always consult your doctor before starting a new technology project. Know the side effects, including burnout, scathing screeds on Reddit forums, and a desire to burn everything to the ground and start over. Take as directed. So yeah, that was that was their change in philosophy. And there's a there's a gist gist. I don't know how to pronounce that on GitHub uh, that details this that I have linked in the show notes. If anybody wants to release it, so, but basically. Once the big tent mentality took over in 2015 with the release of the Liberty uh, version of OpenStack, the number of services that huddled under OpenStack absolutely exploded. We're talking, I think there was seven or eight in 2015, and then things ramped up to over 20 within like a year and a half. Wow. Any poor company looking to run OpenStack on their own basically threw up their hands and ran to the open arms of AWS and Azure, which were both on the ascendancy. Even NASA left the OpenStack Foundation in 2012 to use AWS. And perhaps that should have been in Harbinger. Harbinger? Harbinger. Harbinger. 
We'll go with that. Yeah. I mean, the complexity of installing it, I think, is only dwarfed by the complexity of maintaining it. <laughs> You're not wrong. And even that is challenged by the complexity of patching it. Yeah. In a way, a lot of the complaints that have been lobbed at Kubernetes were also complaints lobbed at OpenStack. And there was a uh, not small contingent of Kubernetes critics that predicted the same fate for Kubernetes that happened to OpenStack, that it would become this overly complex morass of projects that were loosely related and it would be impossible to deploy and manage Kubernetes on your own. Not Which is saying. why now we have very popular services like EKS. <laughs> say they weren't entirely wrong. <laughs> I will say, unlike OpenStack, it's pretty easy to run like a miniature version of Kubernetes on your desktop for testing purposes. OpenStack really didn't lend itself to that sort of portability and ease of deployment. Yeah, I mean, it always seemed to me like if you weren't in on the ground floor and had your knowledge grow with the project itself, it was just too much to take in. Like, where do you even begin? Yes. It was very much like draw the fucking owl, you know? <laughs> yeah. So that and the biggest complaints, and in fact, they're well-documented on uh, that bastion of truth, Wikipedia, is that the high-level complexity the challenge to architect and install, the poor documentation for some projects, and the long-term support and impossibility of easy upgrades all contributed together to make OpenStack, let's say, not so successful amongst a lot of people. It gave people pause. Yes, like a puppy. <laughs> and if running your open source software is free like a puppy... OpenStack is free like Octomom's kids. Zing four? Shit, I forgot to keep track. Maybe eight. <laughs> uh, and if you don't know who Octomom is, then you probably aren't our target, target age group. I actually don't know what age group that falls into. <laughs> <sighs> but despite all this, and the fact that people have claimed OpenStack's demise multiple times, I did... Uh, a Google search for OpenStack is dead. And it returned a lot of results from multiple different years, like 2016, 2017, 2018. Basically every year, someone writes an article about how, how OpenStack is dead. And yet there was a brand new release this year. Yeah, I mean, you have to, you have to give it to them. The people that are invested in it as a concept and as a evolving technology are really invested. Yes. So while widespread use of OpenStack never really materialized due to, let's say, the ease of use that comes with using vSphere on-premises or AWS in the public cloud, the only people that really looked at it were ones who were, let's say, allergic to closed-source software or wanted to rule their own destiny. It was so much easier for most people to just adopt a unified actual product from a single vendor then choose a loose collection of sort of related services that you can put together yourself. Good luck. I mean, AWS is a loose collection of services that you can put together, 
but you don't have to like manage the back end of it at all. Somebody else does that. That part's nice. <laughs> and I could certainly accuse vSphere of product sprawl because damn, but I assure you that it is still a much more unified product than OpenStack ever was. Right. But it turns out there is a segment of folks for whom VMware is not an option and using a public cloud provider is also off the table. Other cloud service providers, for instance, they need something to base their clouds off of and OpenStack might be the right choice for them. Hell, Rackspace is exactly that. And they were one of the founding members of the OpenStack Foundation because the thing they wanted didn't exist. So they built it. That's a good case study, though. I mean, in on the ground floor. In on the ground floor and then eventually leaking exchange data for hundreds of companies. Oh, that didn't have anything to do with OpenStack. No, but I just like to throw some shade in Rackspace sometimes. It's fine. Uh, yeah, so they, you know, if you're a cloud provider, one of the small, smaller, smaller cloud providers that they have in different regions across the EU and, and Africa and South America and whatnot, OpenStack might be a great choice for you to run internally instead of paying the exorbitant licensing fees to VMware. Uh, another segment where OpenStack is popular is with ISP and telecom providers. For them, again, the licensing cost of VMware doesn't make sense, and they want the extreme customization that OpenStack offers. They do one thing, that is all that they do as a telecom provider, and so they want to customize the software behind it to their heart's content. OpenStack lets them do that. And crucially, they've got people that A, understand it well enough, and B, can legitimately say that that is their full-time job. One of the very few OpenStack experts that I ever met was someone we were interviewing for the VAR we both worked at, and he was coming from a telecom provider. Hmm. He could talk OpenStack for days, had never touched VMware. It was kind of amazing. He also didn't get the job. Anyway, so... Red Hat has also tied their little red wagon to OpenStack for the underlying architecture that supports OpenShift. So if you have OpenShift, OpenShift deployed in your organization, you're running OpenStack, but it's managed and curated entirely by Red Hat. They bless it, they take care of it, and they kind of handle the upgrade process. Right, for a fee. Naturally for a fee. And that's honestly how OpenStack continues to live on. It's usually not consumed directly by small businesses or even enterprises. Instead, it's kind of a grab bag of projects that a vendor can hammer into a shape that works for their customers and then offer that thing as a managed service or on a supported support basis, kind of like what Red Hat does. I think Ubuntu has one and so does uh, Susi. Um, as an article by Jeffrey Burt on the Next Platform points out, OpenStack is running on an estimated 40 million CPU cores. It's like a decent amount. But most of those cores are from a very small number of companies that are running OpenStack at scale, which was kind of the idea. So right. 
Some of those companies are Walmart Labs, Workday HR, and China Mobile. Small number of gigantic companies. Absolutely gigantic. Uh, I think they pointed out that Walmart Labs itself is running a cluster that has several million processor cores in it. So they're like a chunk of it by themselves. Right. Yay, Walmart. Uh, OpenStack is also losing ground at the enterprise level. According to a survey from Flexera, they were there 31% of enterprises were using OpenStack in production in some capacity in 2021. That dropped to 16% in 2022 and 12 in 2023. Wow. Yeah. That's a precipitous drop off year over year. Sure is. So it's not that OpenStack is dead, it's just centralizing, condensing. Other words. So with 41 services under the big tent, uh, a management style, which they actually abandoned about four years ago, OpenStack is a sprawling mess if we try and treat it like a unified solution. But if you compare it to, say, the cloud native foundations landscape, which we're all familiar with, I assume, 41 services is basically nothing. I can't it's even true. count the number of projects that are under the CNCF landscape. Yeah, and theoretically, anyway, everything that's under OpenStack does serve a purpose in the OpenStack uh, infrastructure slash universe. Right. But much like the CNCF landscape, any of those particular components can be swapped out for a different similar solution as long as you can write an interface between the other things that it needs to interact with in OpenStack. So right, if you don't which like is what makes the average technologist go cross-eyed. Yes. And the average super enterprise just um, whatever the opposite <laughs> of that is. Yeah. For instance, if you didn't like Cinder, you could swap out and use Ceph, which is what Red Hat did. And then they renamed right. Ceph something else that I can't remember the name of. But it's still Ceph. And they were able to do that because they're Red Hat. So it's better to think of OpenStack as a set of building blocks rather than a prefab cloud that you buy and roll into your data center. Yeah. From that perspective, OpenStack isn't a failure. It just isn't what their founders envisioned. And if there's one thing that 80s movies have taught me, it's that being a duck from another planet means you get to make out with Leah Thompson. Oh, and also, I'm not you, Dad. You can't decide what I'm going to be. If I want to spend all my money on earrings and give them to Leah Thompson, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to go to art school. Well, this, this took a turn. So, in short, uh, OpenStack is not dead. I might be obsessed with Leah Thompson. Yeah, I mean, I think the major takeaway is if you don't know for a fact why your company needs OpenStack, it doesn't. Ooh, that rhymes. You should put that on a sticker. I should start my DJ career. DJ? I mean, MC career. Damn it. <laughs> Lightning round. Go lightning round. Uh, Intel diving into the quantum realm again. 
with a 12 qubit CPU that's based on old tech. Intel is going quantum. Their new processor, named Tunnel Falls for some reason, brings them into the commercial quantum computing race with a 12 qubit chip. This is way behind the technology of companies like IBM, which already have 127 qubit systems that are available to researchers. Still, the chip is a significant step forward for Intel, which has been working on quantum computing for several years. What's interesting is this particular chip is based on older electron-based technology that has been powering x86 CPUs for ages. This is in stark contrast to the unique superconducting designs that IBM uses. So even though the number of qubits that are available is low, this is the first commercial Intel processor that can be used to run real-world quantum algorithms. And they hope that the existing tech and fabrication plants will enable faster evolution of their available offerings. Intel plans to continue developing its quantum computing technology in this manner and hopes to have a, quote, few thousand qubit chip available within the next five years. Microsoft overwhelmed by massive DDoS. It is, um, it's not been a great week for cloud providers and Microsoft was no exception. The cloud giant is attributing issues with Azure, Outlook, and OneDrive to a massive DDoS attack on their infrastructure. The attack targeted layer seven of the networking stack using common exploits like an HTTPS flood, cache bypass, and slow Loris, which is just just the most adorable name for an attack, and I love it. Microsoft has not released additional details regarding the size of the attack or the source, aside from saying that it was a combination of virtual private servers, open proxies, and other DDoS tools. They've named the group behind the attack Storm1359 for tracking purposes, but since the attack, the hacking group Anonymous Sudan has claimed responsibility. Anonymous Sudan has also been behind attacks targeting Swedish, Dutch, and German organizations in the past year. Microsoft has stated that no data was lost or compromised, and services have been restored and further fortified against future attacks. MoveIt supply chain attack keeps collecting new victims. This time, it's the energy department. So... Yeah, y'all remember that whole ServiceNow hack that kind of broke like a thousand companies? Mm. That wasn't the first supply chain type of attack that we've ever seen, but it's certainly one of the earliest high profile ones. Now we have another one in that neighborhood. MoveIt, a company that sells secure file transfer software, suffered a major exploit over Memorial Day weekend the effects of which are still being seen. In general, based on this zero day, if the software was open to the internet, it was compromisable. And unfortunately, as we're learning, regularly compromised. Hmm. How many potentials? Well, Shodan identified 2,510 possible MoveIt targets. One of them, unfortunately, appears to be the United States Department of Energy, or Energy Department, I'm not really sure. It appears from the press releases that this attack was not as sophisticated as the ServiceNow one, as it was, quote, short-lived and, quote, quote, caught quickly. Now, there's no definitive list of information that 
was what was compromised from any of these companies yet. It doesn't sound great. And it's yet another reminder of the number one axiom of internet facing anything. Patch your shit. And also look into zero trust. Mm. Oh, update. Another victim of the move it attack appears to be the antivirus and privacy company Norton LifeLock. So that's kind of ironical, don't you think? I wonder what they'll offer all the victims. <laughs> Major AWS outage in US East 1 shows people still haven't moved. First, we had the great S3 outage of 2017. Then the DNS and network storm of 2021. Both severely impacted operations in the U.S. East 1 region of AWS, also known as the default region that most people deploy their stuff to. And each time, cloud pundits hollered from the mountaintops for companies to migrate off of U.S. East 1 or at least stretch their application to be fault-tolerant to regional outages. Heck, even AWS itself promised to update their customer service app to be more resilient. And yet... On June 13th, AWS started experiencing high error rates from their Lambda service in US East 1. Other services became impacted due to their reliance on Lambda, and soon websites, applications, and services from customers started to fail. For instance, I got a message from Zapier that some of my zaps might be delayed or wouldn't be running during the outage. AWS's customer service app also experienced delays and outages, indicating that they still have some cleanup to do. In the case of Zapier, I don't really care that half my automations had to wait an extra hour or two to fire, but if you're providing a time-sensitive service to customers, it might be time to check and make sure you're not just using US East 1, like, for real this time. Totally for serious. Creative new way hackers are trying to be awful. Now they're pretending to be security researchers. Really, what's the difference? From the, of course, someone would try this eventually department. Hackers are now trying to push malware by pretending to be security researchers. Even up to the point of stealing real researchers' headshots and bio information for their fake Twitter account. Naturally, free speech absolutist Elon Musk has no problem leaving these accounts up, even while he blocks ones that remind people that Twitter has over 25 lawsuits levied against it since he took over and Tesla is scarcely doing any better. Seriously, the worst. Mm -hmm. What was the question again? Oh, right. Hackers. <clears throat> the hackers are posting online, mimicking the way security researchers talk and sharing, quote, tools to, quote, fix the imaginary zero-day attacks that they describe. In all cases thus far, what they're actually sharing is malware. Mm -hmm. One specific kind of malware. The current popular payload is a Python script that attacks Windows and Linux PCs alike, which is why I run Serenity OS. Nothing runs there. Not even <laughs> malware. Google Domains is the latest killed-by-Google victim. Sort of. Are you using Google Domains? Would you be interested in starting a Squarespace subscription to enhance your marketing and reach customers where they are? Why would I ask you such a seemingly unrelated question? Because if you're a Google Domains customer, you're about to be a Squarespace customer. 
as advertising company Google has announced that they are selling their registrar product to Squarespace for an undisclosed amount. Advertising company Google is in a bit of an existential dilemma right now, with AI-based search from the likes of Bing threatening to eat into their cash cow. As a quick reminder, we call them advertising company Google because 90% of their revenue comes from putting ads in front of your eyeballs. Anything else the company does is ancillary and expendable, and everyone working in Google domains just discovered that. And I suspect we're not done with the corporate restructuring. Am I a little concerned that as a Google Fi customer? Why, yes. Yes, I am. I keep forgetting Google Fi is a thing. I've been a happy customer for like six years now, and I'm just waiting for them to destroy it. It's fun. Hey, Frank, thanks for listening or something. I guess you found it worthwhile enough if you made it all the way to the end. So congratulations to you, friend. You accomplished something today. Now you can go sit on the couch, look at other cell phone plans from other providers, you know, just for fun. Yeah, you've earned it. You can find me or Chris on Twitter at Ned1313 and at Hainer80, respectively, or follow the show at Chaos underscore Lever if you're still on Twitter. Not sure I am? Sure. Show notes are available at chaoslever.com if you like reading things, which you shouldn't. Podcasts continue to be better in every conceivable way. We'll be back next week to see what fresh hell is upon us. Ta-ta for now. Did you ever do the Mastodon thing? I forget if you ever did the Mastodon thing. We did a whole show about Mastodon. Yeah, but I wasn't like listening. Uh, it's, yeah, it's a good point. I, I did have a Mastodon account. I technically still do. I haven't checked it or even opened the app in a solid five months. So it's working as as directed. <laughs> I was probably one per, one person desperately sending me messages and wondering where I went. <laughs> <laughs>